Hey everyone, welcome back to Dirty Money. We got an awesome, excellent show for you today. We're going to go through a whole bunch of different topics. Let's start out with the first one we're going to do is the death of Jimmy Buffett. Now this is a little bit crazier than you thought. We're also going to go over gasoline tax in the United States and why does it really exist and how hard does it hit your personal pocket. Another thing we're going to talk about is Burning Man being in Black Rock City. Let's see where that really goes. Also, side hustles in the silent depression. Are they real? Have you seen the reels that are going around right now about people talking about the silent depression that we're supposedly living in? And then we're also going to talk about Ryan Salami and FTX and how he pleaded guilty on two separate charges this week. I hope you look forward to everything that we're going to bring you today on Dirty Money. Also, if you're listening to Dirty Money on a podcast, make sure to give us a five-star rating and to allow us to continue to grow our channel. Also, whatever video platform you're watching, you're listening to, make sure to give us a like and click the bell. So let's start with Jimmy Buffett's money. Jimmy Buffett is ridiculously famous. If you haven't heard of him, he created a famous song called Margaritaville in 1974. It ended up not even being a number one hit, but it catapulted this guy to being one of the wealthiest people in the world. Jimmy Buffett was one of 2,543 richest men in the world. He was worth $1 billion, and all of his fame and success came from his famous song, Margaritaville. If you haven't heard it, take a chance, look it up, go see if you can find it on YouTube or on uh, a different streaming platform. Wasted away again in Margaritaville. Very famous song. The song's so famous, it had 6.3 billion listeners on the radio before there even was video or audio streaming. Now it's got 231 on-demand audio streams. But interestingly enough, the song never even hit number one on the Hot Billboard 100. It hit number one on the contemporary charts in 1974. Now, Jimmy did release several songs that followed up to him, but none of them really had the same success as his Margaritaville song. From that song, over the course of the 1970s and 80s, Jimmy developed like a cult-like following of people who enjoyed his music, and they liked what they uh, referred to as a good time feeling kind of anthem music. So he came out with uh, Margaritaville, Cheeseburgers in Paradise. He did another song in, uh, in 2003 with Kenny Chesney called Five O'Clock Somewhere. All of them kind of referring to having a good time and kind of living it up, partying on the beach. Now, out of that, in 1985, he decided with his manager that he was going to kind of kick it up a notch and not just make music because his music was no longer hitting the hot billboard or anything. So he took the name Margaritaville and he opened up his first Margaritaville store in 1985 to a complete failure. The store had to be closed. It was in Gulf Shores, Alabama. A few months later, he opened up in his favorite place, Key West, Florida, and the store was a hit. Did really, really, really well. Now, around the same time, he was sitting with his manager and his manager was trying to work out a deal with Eagles and Corona. At the time, Corona was kind of like a failing beer, not really popular in the United States, place where Budweiser was champion uh, throughout the 80s. And he said to his manager, I want to actually 
do the Corona sponsorship. So Corona said, all right, we're going to sponsor you. And uh, in 1985, he took on that sponsorship and wrote it pretty well. Corona became synonymous with beaches because of Jimmy Buffett. If you're seeing a Corona ad with uh, some people on the beach or things like that, it's because Jimmy Buffett portrayed the beach lifestyle to people. And Corona was there to support him and gave him that sponsorship that really pushed it to the next level. But in uh, 2006, Margaritaville had had really pushed its single stores, its restaurants, its whole imagery, its whole company to the next level and was approaching, you know, half a billion dollars in revenue. And so Jimmy Buffett and his team decided that they needed to make their own personalized beer that they could serve at their restaurants and resorts. Uh, they approached Corona. Corona said, why do we want to do a white label beer for you when we already have Corona? So they turned him down. Uh, with that, Buffett went to Anheuser-Busch and said, will you make us a, a beer out of Jacksonville, Florida? And that's how Landshark was born. If you've never heard of Landshark, it's pretty popular beer here in the States. They also have Landshark Bar and Grills. Again, part of his empire. Now, he didn't really start growing his empire too large with the food and beverage industry until about 2002, when he partnered with Outback Steakhouse to do Cheeseburger in Paradise. Now, Cheeseburger in Paradise, if you ever went there, he's kind of mediocre with the food, to be honest. I went to a couple of different ones, wasn't really impressed. And to be honest, I'm not really impressed with the Margaritaville food that I've had either. Um, but the Cheeseburger in Paradise grew from 2002 to 2013 to 23 locations in 14 states. Uh, at that point, they decided to try to liquidate it, and it, it got a little bit different. Now, the interesting thing is that when this is all going down, Buffett comes out with Buffett World. As you can see here, Buffett World is this whole conglomerate based around Margaritaville. And what Jimmy Buffett created was really an empire of entertainment based around having a good time on the beach, drinking and engaging in live music. And really his legacies lived on through that. And there's a lot of different other things that have come about because of it. But um, the cheeseburger in paradise is actually shut down. They liquidated everything in 2020. They closed their last store. Now, there's also Margaritaville cruise stuff. There's Margaritaville um, places and airports. I think there's about 10 different locations throughout airports in the United States where you can go in to a bar, a restaurant, have a drink, uh, buy some merchandise, and, and spend a little bit of time while you're waiting for your flight or getting off of your, your last flight. So there's a lot of different avenues that he took to be successful, and it really started in 1985, and now he leaves on a legacy to his children and to everything uh, he stood for, which was pretty much just feel good, have a good time. There's other uh, interesting things, like there's lots of festivals all over the United States that have uh, come up over the last 20 years to help kind of celebrate Jimmy Buffett and, and his whole uh, appearance, imagery, and who he was. So uh, there's one festival in a place called Caseville, Michigan, and it's called Cheeseburger. I mean, I think 10,000 people show up to this little podunk town in Northern Michigan every year just to celebrate Jimmy Buffett's songs. And again, that feel good theme. So, you know, out of, out of one guy creating a, a hot billboard top 100, it was top 10. It got to number eight. 
So he he took that song and really pushed it to the next level and became a billionaire because he embraced what he thought was a good time. And people love it. You know, he's got his group of following people. Parrot heads is what they're called. And now that's that's kind of how Jimmy Buffett became who he was. Uh, he's admired by several people. More or less, the business world thinks of him as an entrepreneur rather than than a musician. Um, and I think he would like to think of himself as a musician uh, who just got lucky. So that being said, something that's not lucky is the gasoline tax that everybody in the United States feels. Now, it was interesting. I was driving across the country uh, last week, uh, the Northeast to the Midwest, and I stopped and I saw in Pennsylvania that there was this gas tax uh, sign on next to the gas pump and it said 24 cents federal for diesel 17 cents federal for gas and then it had the actual state tax and i didn't really realize that the feds taxed gas along with the state taxing gas so there's this tax on gasoline which i knew existed i just didn't know the level that it existed so the first state to actually bring gasoline tax was oregon and you can see here all the different levels of gas taxes and how much they are. Now, this is in 2022. 2022, all the ones in red are the federal tax amounts. The left is gasoline, the right is diesel. And you can see that they stay pretty even, but each state has their own level. The top state in 2022 was Pennsylvania, but California overtook it in 2023 with 77 cents a gallon taxed. So you're getting 17 cents on a gas from the feds, and then you're getting 77 cents gas tax from the state of California, almost a dollar a gallon. I mean, when you think about that, gas prices averaging $4, essentially they would go down a dollar if we weren't being taxed on gas. So the first place to actually tax gas in the United States was Oregon in 1919, and they taxed at one cent per gallon. Uh, they said the revenue was going to be used to build roads, and it was really including the Pacific Highway and the Columbia River Highway that uh, really helped to build up the infrastructure on the West Coast. But interestingly enough, within 10 years, from 1919 to 1929, every single state in the Union had a gas tax. So within a decade of one state doing it, everybody jumped on. Now, the feds as well jumped on the bandwagon and introduced their state tax. So there are some states, however, that when the, tax, when the gas prices go really high, like they did last year at the end of 2022, they'll do a gas tax holiday, or they'll give you four weeks of no gas tax. So the state of Florida did it in October. And you can see on this map, this is a 2023 map. The darkest states have the highest tax per gallon for gasoline. So California is number one, Pennsylvania is number two, Illinois is number three. Those places really hit you hard. Uh, so that's pretty, pretty interesting to think when you go, why would this state tax more than the other states? I can see California needing more infrastructure, 40 million, 39 million people live there. Uh, Pennsylvania, I mean, it, there are people there, but fundamentally, it's it, it just curious as to what these funds really go to. And when I started to research it a little bit more, all I found is they just went to road building. That was basically the overall um, 
reason for any state to have the gas tax was because they wanted to build more roads. Uh, and then my mind got thinking like, what is my actual, when I register my vehicle in the state and I pay anywhere from a hundred to $400 to register the vehicle, what does that go to? So there's a lot of uh, tax to no end when it comes to this. Now, some states even have gas tax. And then on top of that, they hit you with sales tax, which is really crazy to me. So not only are you getting hit with say California, uh, 77 cents, then you're getting hit with another sales tax that can be eight cents. So you're almost literally being taxed a dollar to put one gallon of gas into your car. Um, so that, that's a bit of an interesting layout when it comes to how gas taxes work and where they came from. Now, one place that really kind of came up on the radar this week was Burning Man. If you're not familiar with Burning Man, it's an event that happens in Black Rock City. It's northwestern Nevada. It is a huge festival, usually draws 80,000 people there every year. Um, and it's about 100 miles northeast of Reno. Um, and it's been going on since 91. It came uh, to be it's based around these 10 stated principles that radical inclusion, gifting, uh, decommodification, radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, communal effort, civic responsibility, leaving no trace, and participation and immediacy. So interestingly enough, when I see radical, 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 and I hear that often stated in something, I start thinking of uh, Saul Alinsky's uh, rules for radicals and the perpetuation of communism, which really got me thinking, what is Burning Man about? And, you know, Larry, Larry Harvey, the guy that created it, he seems pretty solid. He didn't seem like a, a crazy guy. He didn't seem like a radical. He actually seemed like just a free thinker from San Francisco, which is respectable. But, yeah, again, it, it's interesting that this event keep speaking about radical behavior um, and what it perpetuates. Now, Harvey died in 2018. And that year after Google took over ownership of the Burning Man in Black Rock City, Google currently owns 51.2% of Burning Man. Now, you might think Google, Black Rock, you know, this investment firm, what's really going on here? Truth is, is BlackRock City really has nothing to do with BlackRock, the investment firm that does trillions and trillions of dollars worth of uh, investments for worldwide companies and pretty much controls most of the financial markets or has a very strong play into the financial markets. So here you can see the article that talks about how Google acquired Burning Man. Now, interesting, Sergey Brin and um, the Google... And uh, Larry, I can't remember the other guy's name, Sergey Bram and his partner at Google, they had been going to Burning Man since 1999 when it transferred over to Black Rock City in Nevada. And so they wanted, obviously, to have ownership in it. Now, for what reason? I don't know. Maybe it's part of the 15-minute city plan. Maybe it's uh, part of a couple other plans and agendas they have for trying to create a more uh, technologically advanced city and they can do demonstrations of this during Burning Man where 
one year they had a image of a burning man created in all drones. So it's interesting to think about, but getting back to the BlackRock topic is BlackRock city has again, nothing to do with BlackRock, the investment firm on the surface. BlackRock city is called is because it's in the BlackRock desert and the BlackRock desert is more or less uh, that way because it's geothermal area in the volcanic region. Uh, and there's two black rock points, uh, west and east, and the southern end of the black rock range, uh, where there's dark volcanic rocks and things like that. So that's where the actual name comes from. Now let's get into a little bit more interesting topic about the money side of Burning Man. So Burning Man's annual revenue right now is around $46 million. Uh, I don't, there is a nonprofit. So they say they use all that money for putting on the festival, which I can see you're bringing 80,000 people to a desert and you're erecting a city uh, for a week long party. That would make sense. Uh, but it breaks down to, they have about 467 employees for Burning Man and uh, the revenue per employee ratio is around $98,000 per employee. That's, that's a pretty good wage if you're getting it all to your employees. Bet you somebody's getting a little bit more than just the average employee down the line. But in 2022, Burning Man sold out in 29 minutes. Every single ticket was sold at $575 a ticket sold out in 2022. A lot of that had to do with COVID and the fact that people were staying in their homes and not doing much for two years. And so in 2022, they kind of skyrocketed. Now, the opposite happened this year in 2023, where they were selling tickets $400 below market value. And so now the whole festival and events really under a stressful situation because they didn't bring in the revenue this year that they wanted to. So Burning Man really had a lot of trouble this year. And a lot of people put it on to the financial a downturn that you might not see in paper, but you're kind of feeling similar to what happened before 2008. You, you know, there's cities and in towns all over the country, 2006, 7, 05, that were starting to feel a little bit of a pressure of uh, economic downturn until everybody felt it in 2008. And that was when the Great Recession came into play. And speaking of Great Recessions, there's uh, something I wanted to talk about. A lot of the time lately, people have been seeing the silent depression reels going around. And, you know, I was thinking, if you have a silent depression and side hustles, everybody seems to have a side hustle now. Like, oh, I sell this stuff on Amazon. I do a YouTube show. I uh, sell stuff at events, uh, you know, and, and the the real question is, is do do people need the side hustles? Do they want the side hustles? And, and are they really helping people? Or are they just taking away from what you would consider family time, traditional development? How does it really work out for individuals when they're putting together their side hustles? I mean, so I don't know if you've seen this reel with the silent depression.
I heard a new term on TikTok today that made me stop in my tracks. We are living in the silent depression. This guy believes we are not just living in worse than the Great Depression. We're living in the silent depression. The average annual income in 1930 for an American individual was a little over $4,800. Sounds like nothing. But if you adjust that for inflation, a little over $4,800 a year in 1930 is equivalent to almost $85,000 annually for the average salary for one person. Right now, the average average annual salary is $56,000 a year. We currently are making less than the height of the Great Depression. In 1930, gas was on average 10 cents a gallon. That would be about $1.73. In case you haven't filled up your car lately, average cost of a gallon of gas is $3.55. To buy a new car in 1930 would have been about $860. It's worth about 15 grand. The average cost of a new car today is $48,000. And of course, the most coveted aspect of the American dream, being able to buy a house in 1930, cost about $3,900, less than $70,000. I spend way too much time on Zillow, so maybe this isn't surprising to me, but the average price of a home in America today is $416 thousand dollars how could we be living through worst cost of living and wages than 1930 and no politician no media outlet no one is talking about it that's bidenomics it's about growing an economy by strengthening the middle class it's really interesting when you look at that and you think like whoa is that really real it's it, are we living in a silent depression so i was like let me just go through and look at what the depression was so when you talk about the depression and you say $4,800 was the average income, that was based on the IRS's revenue in 1930 with 1.7 million people submitting their income to them. The truth is, is if you look at the numbers, it was more like $1,300. And then if you look into it a little bit more deeply, the actual unemployment rate during 1920, 1930 was at 18%. That is one out of five people didn't have a job and claim that they were unemployed. Now, if we had that happen today, we would see a complete collapse of our economy. One out of five people couldn't find a job. So to really say that we're living in a silent depression is a, is a bit of a stretch. Now, don't get me wrong. Inflation is a hidden tax. And the, the way that our money is chewed up by the government is pretty ridiculous. But how the Great Depression happened is, is it was kind of like the perfect storm, right? 1929, you have the stock market crash. Famous, infamous 1929 stock market crash. The stock market literally goes from 300 points down to 180 one day, done. So almost half of the stock market evaporates overnight. And then you have what's called the Smoothie, Smooth Holly Act, which broke down international trade, put crazy tariffs on everything, and made it pretty ridiculous. And then you have the worst drought the United States has ever seen take the plains where all of our food and a lot of our economy and a lot of our our GDP came from at the time was selling uh, food. So you kind of had this perfect storm for the Great Depression. Now, whether that was orchestrated by some powers, I don't know. But what I'm saying is, is it was a perfect storm. And it allowed for our entire country to get hit. Now, the factors 
that really happened is, is by 1933, our international trade had gone down 76% from its height in 1929. That right there is a ridiculous amount. The world GDP fell 15% in those four years. Now, we went through a great recession. Some of you might remember it. Our GDP in the world went down 1%. We're talking 15% GDP worldwide. The whole world basically economically collapsed for an entire decade. And so when you talk about the cost of living and things like that, people weren't even registering and purchasing homes. People were living on the plains, building homes. They were, they were buying kits from Sears and Roebuck to build houses on their land without any type of permits or any type of things that were needed to build a home. So to compare apples to apples from that time period to ours is, is almost unrealistic. You're talking about a hundred year time gap. Now, do I think that we're living in a time period where our financial worlds are being suppressed and that our money is being taxed beyond uh, recognition and that we're, we're constantly paying for goods that we don't need, uh, that we're creating a entire uh, society that revolves around money worship? Yeah, of course. But really, to compare our finances now and say we're in a silent depression, I mean, in the Great Depression, it was hard to get food at times. I, I am yet to find somebody that is truly having a difficult time to feed themselves in the United States. Now, I've seen people that don't eat because they have addiction issues. Uh, they choose to, to live a certain way. But if they needed food, most of the time people have access to it. There's food shelters. Uh, there's, there's, you know, food cards that are available state to state, federally. There's a lot of different welfare programs in the United States that allow people to feed themselves. Back then, there weren't any. And people were struggling just to survive, considering that they couldn't even grow foods because there was a drought. Uh, where the breadbasket of the world was. So there's a lot of different things to think about when you're comparing apples to apples or oranges to apples are really, I would say this is more of like a watermelon comparison to uh, to a grapefruit. Like they're just, they're both fruits, but really it's not something that you could say is equally uh, understood. And so when you see silent depression, Think a little bit more outside the box uh, and, and look at it from uh, a fundamental perspective. Educate yourself a little bit more on the Great Depression, how it looked, how it started. Um, you know, our, our country was roaring in the 20s and then it just fell apart. Uh, I think there's a lot more to that. Maybe I'll dive into it on another show where we talk about the Great Depression and what were the catalysts to it. I think uh, a lot of that has to go back to the Federal Reserve and the IRS creation in 1913 under Woodrow Wilson, but that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. Last but not least, I want to talk about uh, the infamous FTX. So Ryan Salami, an executive at FTX, was uh, tried this week for two counts. One, uh, he actually uh, admitted to committing them. He pled guilty. One was the federal campaign finance, and another one was the money transmitting crimes. Now, if you don't know about FTX, FTX is the current cryptocurrency trading company it was endorsed by people like Tom Brady, 
um, where uh, lots of famous people lost millions of dollars and uh, totaling billions of dollars in loss. And Sam Bankman Freed was the person that basically created a large crypto Ponzi scheme, but it, but it looked more or less like it was a big laundromat for people to put money in and out of. Um, so interestingly enough, uh, Salamis uh, gets uh, brought up on charges, pleads guilty. He's got to re return and forfeit $1.5 billion, but his federal campaign finances, because there was about $80 million over the course of the midterms in 2022, where he directly financed political campaigns. And then another thing is, is that the money transmitting crime. So I kind of had to look this up, you know, money transmitting crimes is, uh, so according to the U.S. Code, Five uh, fifty-three thirty. Failing to properly license a money transmitting business can result in five thousand dollars in fines, and can bring up to five years imprisonments for each in violation of operating an unlicensed money transmitting business. Now, interesting enough, it keeps on bringing up money. It doesn't say currency. It says money. So, what is money? Money is a current a current medium of exchange in the form of coins and banknotes. So interestingly, they keep saying that it's money transmitting crimes. Truth is, is what kind of, were they physical coins or were they digital coins? What was the regulation of these coins? And really, were there any banknotes involved at all? And so when you look at it, I think there's a little bit of something else that's underneath the, the wool here that we're not being brought to light. But the money transmitting crimes is basically taking people's money and then turning it over and returning it to them. So uh, right now, the coins, I guess you could say FTX handled uh, crypto coins. But again, that's an unregulated currency. It's not the coin that's referred to in money. Those coins are the physical coins that you have and you live with day to day. You know, these coins, that's what they are. It's not the standard coins that you see digitally. So when you really start to think about all of this, it, it, it makes you wonder, like, why did he fund so much political campaigns? He, he funded Democratic campaigns. They funded, uh, when I say he, I mean Salami and uh, Freed. They funded Democratic. They funded Republican. They put a lot of money backing political campaigns in the United States. And the federal campaign finance law, it's a whole laundry list of things. You can go, just Google it, look it up, and you can start to educate yourself on that. But, but the truth be told is that why were they donating so much to these political parties? What made that such an interesting thing? If you knew that you were you know, doing something illegal, why would you turn around and make yourself so well-known? to donate to these massive campaigns? What kind of intelligence were you really trying to operate under? And so when you look at the Sam Bankman Freed and now Ryan Salami, is, is where, where does this all go and how do they become better uh, through this? And if they are gonna be better and if, if they were you know, told to do this or you know, this or that, how does that really turn out for both of them? Uh, Freed's going to go on trial here in October, um, and uh, Salami, I think, will you know get whatever he gets, but he did plead guilty, so we'll see how that goes.
So that's pretty much it for today's Dirty Money. If you have any uh, questions, comments, things, ideas that you'd like to bring out about the show, put it in the comments below. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, Ganching World, or anywhere else, please just leave a comment and a like. We'd appreciate it. And download our podcast uh, wherever you listen to it there. And that's it for Dirty Money.